good morning, afternoon, or evening for wherever you may be joining us from today. Welcome to the Life Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. special privilege to be here on this special Sunday, celebrating five years with the O'Donnells, and uh, I may or may not remember saying something about the dirty backside of an American city. I don't know if I'm going to claim that since I've got to go back to America Tuesday, so I'm not sure I'll claim that, but I do remember telling him that I thought it felt really good about Pastor Steve and Sister Sherry coming here. And uh, time has proved that that was the will of God for them and for you folks. And I'm so very grateful. Uh, My goodness. And, uh, yeah, that's all right. Uh, Go ahead and be seated if you want to. Um, The um, uh, Steve and Sherry O'Donnell are just two great, great people, uh, personable and spiritual, and they've just got the whole package. It's just amazing, and Luke and Grace have raised them right. Thank you for making a, a good job uh, raising your parents. That's, that's so wonderful, and uh, I'm so thankful for everything God has done. It's a real honor to be uh, with you here today. It's a wonderful privilege to know Jesus, and it's a great, great privilege to uh, live for Him in this era of time when He's doing such great things around the world. Uh, Pastor Steve mentioned the Philippines um, about three weeks ago, a little bit better. We were there for, uh, because of the times with the team that went, and I had the privilege of going. And uh, so we had a conference for the ministers and their wives and families, and uh, that was in a a stadium for uh, three days. And uh, then we did a fourth day where we did a a concert and kind of an indoor crusade. And I don't know how many people got the Holy Ghost or got miracles that night. It was amazing. Uh, Because of the Times meeting, there was the arena there seats about 18,000. And so there were somewhere between 16 and 18,000 people there. But then three weeks ago today, um, on Sunday afternoon, we moved to a soccer stadium. And uh, there there is some, um, you know, terrorist activity within the Philippines. Um, in some of the islands, and so uh, the police did security for that stadium. Anytime there's a big crowd, especially a Christian crowd, um, they need to be careful. So by police count, there were 42,000 people in that big soccer stadium that afternoon, and uh, our best, very conservative estimate, uh, somewhere between eight and 10,000 people received the baptism of the Holy Ghost at the end of that crusade. It's amazing. And... Uh, just absolutely breathtaking. And uh, so if we can get this to go, uh, I gave your media team uh, a little clip of the moment when 8,000 of your brothers and sisters received the Holy Ghost and spoke in tongues for the first time. So let's uh, take a look at that if we can.
I thank God we get to live in a day like that. My goodness. What a privilege uh, to know what God is doing around the world. And a great privilege to know what he's doing here. And uh, I'm, I'm so grateful. And I do have a, a message I want to share with you tonight uh, from the book of Joshua. And I'm simply going to entitle this, Take the Land. Somebody say, Take the Land. Take the land. Amen. Uh, now, the book of Joshua is a unique book in uh, the scripture. It's, um, it, it's kind of like this book where everything is resetting and everything is starting over. Um, they have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And before that, they were slaves for over 400 years, almost 430 years. And so for over four centuries, Israel, they have acted like slaves, lived like slaves, thought like slaves, reacted like slaves. And God set them free, um, but now they've, they've kind of wandered uh, They've had the word of God, but some people didn't believe the word of God, and that set them back. And, and so now that whole generation that refused the word of the Lord, they've died off, basically. And under uh, Joshua's leadership now, they're preparing to enter into their promised land. So the word of God to them is take the land. Now, the young man named Joshua, I want to start by talking about him because God spent many years preparing that young man, Joshua, for his calling. Joshua was born into slavery. We don't think of that because we turn the page and we think we're in a brand new book, but Joshua was born a slave. He was actually given the name Hoshea, uh, which means salvation. And later you read in Numbers 13 verse 16 that uh, these are the names of the men which Moses sent to spy out the land. Moses took Joshua's name, Hoshea, and he changed it. He called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Jehoshua. So Moses literally changed his name from uh, Hoshea, which means salvation, to Jehoshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. And those of you that are Bible students and Bible lovers, you know that Joshua is the Hebrew form of the name we know in the New Testament, the name of Jesus. Now, but you got to think about this. When Joshua's parents, <clears throat> when they gave that baby boy the name Salvation, that's what his name was, they were declaring some major faith in God's promise. They are slaves. Their parents were slaves. Their grandparents were slaves. Everything back for 400 years, everybody has been a slave, and yet they named their baby boy Salvation. They believed God's promise. Joshua belonged to the tribe of Ephraim. He was the firstborn son of a man named Nun. And so that means that on the night of the Passover, Joshua's life was in danger. Because it wasn't a racist thing that God did on Passover. God didn't say, I'm going to kill all the Egyptians and I'm going to save all the Israelites. That is not what he did. He gave them a command. He said, if you'll put the blood on the doorpost, it will be the blood that saves you. And so if an Egyptian had obeyed the word of God and put blood on their doorpost, they would have been saved. If an Israelite disobeyed and didn't put the blood on the doorpost, they wouldn't have been saved. God wasn't saying, I favor this nation over that, or this culture over that, or this ethnicity over that. He wasn't saying that at all. He was saying, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. I will deliver you. Now, you got to imagine that young man, Joshua, he was a firstborn. If his parents hadn't obeyed the word of God, he would have died with every other firstborn in the land of Egypt on the night of Passover. So that kid grew up 
literally knowing what it was to be saved and protected by the blood of the Lamb. That's a pretty cool parallel. As a young man, Joshua, when they were delivered from Egypt, he wandered through the wilderness with everybody else. And, and so he would have seen all the signs and all the wonders that God performed as he delivered his people from Egypt. Um, you know, when God delivered his people from Egypt, the ten plagues, we read about that. And that's been dramatized in all kinds of films and movies and even cartoons and animated things. And, and we, we know about the ten plagues. But sometimes people think that's God having a temper tantrum. Uh, it's not. God systematically humiliated all the false gods of Egypt in, in 10 stages. You worship the Nile River, the Nile's blood. You worship Hector the frog goddess, then the land's full of frogs. You, you worship Ra the sun god, then, then the sun's going to turn dark. And, and you worship Osiris the giver of life, then okay, the firstborn, everybody's going to die. God systematically proved that their gods were false and there was only one true living God. And so Joshua saw all of that. This kid grew up with an incredible faith and confidence in God. Now Joshua, he was a soldier. His first recorded victory in his military career was his defeat of an enemy of Israel called the Amalekites. And that's in your Bible in Exodus 17. And in that very first battle that Joshua the soldier fought... The elder Moses taught that young man a lesson that he never forgot. He taught him and his buddies Aaron and her the power of prayer. Um, Exodus chapter 17 verse 11. It came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. That's a pretty strange scripture. In other words, when uh, uh, Israel was fighting... Israel would surge forward and they'd begin to win. But then as the day wore on, they'd get weary. The soldiers are weary and Amalek would start to prevail. So they, they said, Moses, go up on the mountain and pray for us. So Moses goes up on the mountain and he holds up his hands and he prays over Israel. And they notice that as long as the elders praying for them, the, that Israel surges forward and the battle's won. But then Moses gets tired and his hands come down and Amalek starts to win and they start to push back. And so they've noticed the connection with this prayer and Moses prays up on the mountain. And so they send Aaron and her up on the mountain. Joshua's leading the army in the valley below. And he sends his buddies up on the mountain. And Aaron and her get one on either side of the elder. And they prop his hands up. And as long as Moses' hands are up, Israel prevails. And Joshua learned very, very early that some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Um, the 21st letter of the Hebrew alphabet is called the Sheen. It's a, a unique little three-pronged letter. Uh, it looks like this, um, three prongs. And, and Psalm 119, if you look in a classic uh, King James English version of the Bible, Psalm 119 is divided into 22 stanzas, 22 uh, sections. Each one of them contain eight verses, and over the top of each of the verses is a little squiggly Hebrew letter. That is the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet in order in your Bible. And, and the cool thing is, this is how the Jews memorize huge sections of the Scripture. Uh, each of the letters in each of those sections begins, if you could read it in Hebrew, it begins with uh, the letter over top of that section. So uh, you see the, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and then every one of those eight verses under that letter in Hebrew began with that letter. So that's how they memorize these huge portions of the Word of God. If you look at Psalm 119, verse 161, right above that stanza is this little letter, the sheen. It's the 
first letter of the 22-letter Hebrew alphabet. And it's a great letter in Hebrew because all the letters mean something, but this letter's high and holy. It's sacred. It represents not one, but two names of God. Uh, the sheen represents uh, El Shaddai. It represents that. Um, that, that is um, God Almighty, the all-sufficient one, the unlimited one. Uh, and it also represents shalom, which is God our peace or God our wholeness or completeness. So it's, it's a pretty powerful letter. But the old Jewish rabbis taught that the sheen looks like the, the, a man or woman in the proper position of prayer or worship. That the middle prong of the letter represents their head. And the outer two prongs of the letter represent their uplifted hands. Now, I, I know you thought that this is just kind of Pentecostal custom when we do this. That, that we kind of worship with more exuberance than others. And that some other churches have kind of adopted that now because it's an exciting way to worship. And, and we all kind of do the wave. That's not what that is. When you lift your hands to worship God, that's ancient worship. It reaches all the way back into the Old Testament, and the Jews knew this first, that when you lift up your hands in the presence of God and you begin to worship him, you have formed the uh, sheen with your posture. You've actually invoked the name of God with your uplifted hands before you ever opened your mouth. That's ancient worship. And can you imagine the power for those of us that have the revelation of who God is, that he came in flesh and his name is Jesus. Can you imagine the power that's unleashed when we lift up our hands, we've already invoked God's name with our posture and then we add the name of Jesus with our voice and we begin to worship him that's why that feels different than just sitting in a room when you begin to worship God that's why that feels different that's not Pentecostal that's not apostolic that's not even uh, Jewish that's ancient God gave the Jews that and when you lift up your hands something breaks and shakes and quakes in the atmosphere it looses something and that's what Moses was doing see Moses wasn't just up there cheerleading Moses was invoking the name of God when he lifted up his hands that setting sun cast the shadow of the name of God on the army below and when the name of God touched the people of God it changed the outcome of the battle that's what was happening on that day it's amazing Joshua learned that in his very first battle Joshua wasn't just a soldier Joshua was a servant and uh, Joshua became Moses right hand man as, as Moses led Israel he was the kid that accompanied Moses to Mount Sinai when Moses received the Ten Commandments. He was with the elder when Moses came down that mountain and God's people had rebelled and they built that golden calf. And he was there when Moses smashed that golden calf up and ground it to powder and, and he made the people drink it mixed with water. It was awful. Joshua was there. He saw all of that. Joshua saw great and powerful miracles. He saw that man Moses used by God in such powerful ways. But here's the thing I love about Joshua. Exodus 33 and 11. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face like a man would speak to his friend. Look, look at this. This is really neat. Moses turned again into the camp. He's old. He's got to go get some rest. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, he departed not out of the tabernacle. Joshua said, I am not going to coast on Moses' coattails. I am not going to only know God through Moses. I am not going to coast because somebody I'm close to has a relationship with God and knows how to pray. I am going to stay here in this tabernacle. Moses, you go get some rest, but I'm going to stay here. I'm going to carve out my own relationship with God. 
Can I tell you, I'm not content. And if I lived in Burlington, that would be my pastor. And I'm so thrilled about this great man of God and his family that serve you. But I'm telling you this. I'm not content to only have my pastor have a relationship with God. I'm not content for just the people in my church to know how to pray. I want to know how to pray. I want to know how to touch God. And Joshua, he wasn't content to just coast. He carved out his own relationship with God. And uh, if you're new here at Life Church, or if you're young, you're a young Christian, uh, you need to know that. You need to carve out a relationship with God that when the storms of life hit you on Thursday morning, and there's not going to be church until Sunday morning, you, you need to know that you can get a hold of God. And it's not just like through five other people and six other phone calls and three other emails. No, you can get a hold of God for yourself. That was Joshua. He served Moses, an amazing young man. And Joshua was kind of cool, too. Joshua wasn't just a soldier and a servant. He was a spy. That's a cool career. Uh, I'm not looking for that, but, um, but that's a cool career. He was one of the 12 that were sent to investigate the promised land, and that was 40 years in the rearview mirror uh, from this point where we're reading. And out of the 12 that went in to look and spy out the promised land, only two, Joshua and Caleb, actually believed the word of the Lord. Um, and the Israelites chose to go with the ten faithless spies into the, instead of the two believing spies. And, and that one act of unbelief and that one act of rebellion, it delayed their conquest of the land God wanted for them for four decades. Now, here's what I love about that young man named Joshua. Hmm. It, let, let me take you to the setting first because this is neat. Numbers 13. Caleb stilled the people before Moses. He said, let's go up at once. We can do this. Let's possess it. We are well able to overcome it. And then the men that went up with him, this is the other 10, they said, we be not able to go up against the people. They are stronger than we. We can't do it. They're stronger. We can't do it. They're bigger. We can't do it. They've got more, more resources. We can't do it because when we look at them, we're scared. And Joshua said, I'm not scared. You're looking at the size of the enemy compared to us. I'm looking at the size of the enemy compared to God. And that's a whole different ball of wax. You know, that's what David did. Remember David and Goliath? You know, everybody's quaking in their boots, and Israel's all over here on this side of the valley, and they're all shaking and quaking, and, and Goliath's on the other side, and he's threatening, and he's big and large, and he's, he's threatening and, and they're all here huddled in the camp of Israel. And basically, they're all saying, oh, God, we need you to move. Oh, God, we need you to move. And up in heaven, God's saying, oh, Israel, I need you to move. And then this kid named David walks into the camp one morning and says, who's that? And they say, that's Goliath. And, and what's he doing? Well, he's been blaspheming the name of God for all of these days. And David said, what's wrong with you? And David grabs, you know the story, five smooth stones. And, and we've preached on that for a thousand years. You know, uh, five smooth stones, and I've heard everything. Goliath had five brothers, and it's the fivefold ministry and whatever. Here's what I think. Do you know what the penalty for blasphemy was in ancient Israel? Death by stoning. David just said, you're going to blaspheme my God? Here's the penalty for that. Let me grab some rocks. David went out all alone, a kid, to stone that giant for blaspheme in the name of God. And you know what? When David moved, God moved. And sometimes we need to learn that lesson. We're sitting around saying, oh, God, would you move and deliver me? And God's saying, how about you reach out in faith? And how about you do something? And I'll meet you in your faith. That's what David did. That's what Joshua did. You know what I love about this kid, though? 
the other people who didn't believe delayed him. They held him up, him and Caleb. They get carted around from sand dune to sand dune to sand dune for 40 years. They were the believing ones. Everybody else was the backslidden ones. And you know what I love about them? They didn't get bitter. They didn't backslide. They didn't leave Israel and look for another place, to another country to belong to. They just got carted along with everybody else, and they never gave up their faith. Even though it took 40 years, they were still believing God 40 years later. Joshua wasn't just a, a soldier and a servant and a spy. He was Moses' successor. He was the one being prepared by God and prepared by Moses to lead Israel. Even while he was serving, he was being prepared to lead. Now, here's what I, I love about Moses. And here's what I love, by the way, about your pastor. Moses was a secure leader who was willing to share his authority so the people of Israel could have a strong future. Look, look at this. This is a cool verse. Numbers 27, verse 18. The Lord said to Moses, Take thee, Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom was in the spirit. Lay thine hand upon him and set him before Eleazar the priest, before all the congregation. Give him a charge in their sight. Watch. This is what God said. And thou shalt put some of thine honor upon him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He said, Moses, share your honor. Moses, share your authority. Moses, share your position. That's what I love about here. You're not led just by one pastor. You're led by a team of pastors. And thank you for being a mature church that honors your leaders that lead you. And, and you don't like, okay, we're going to save all of our response and enthusiasm for when Pastor Steve gets in the pulpit. You don't do that. You start from the get-go, and it doesn't matter who's leading the service or who's worshiping or who's doing whatever, you're in. Thank you for that because that's the mark of a mature church. And see, what pastor has done in, in this congregation is he laid his hands on other people that are anointed to lead and anointed to, to help. And that's exactly the plan God gave Moses. There are some men that are scared to share their honor and their authority. Moses wasn't scared. And, and here's what happened. Because Moses honored Joshua, Joshua turned right around and honored Moses. This is the book of Joshua we've been reading from. And the elder Moses, he's dead. He's gone. But he's still mentioned 57 times in the book of Joshua. Because Joshua isn't abandoning his past. He's building on his past. He's not walking away from what Moses taught. He's building on what Moses taught. And Joshua is a different generation. And, and you get this with generations. Um, let, let me help you with this. With, with a new generation, uh, there's not always conformity to the methods of the past. Methods change. And if you haven't noticed that, um, just pick up your cell phone sometime and you'll understand that methods change, okay? Um, methods change. It's not important whether the methods change or not. Methods come and go. What's important is Joshua had the same message that Moses did. And, and so he led. And, and the message, there needs to be continuity between generations. But methods, there's not always conformity. Moses, uh, he held out the rod over the sea and the sea parted. Joshua didn't do it that way. Joshua walks, walks up to the water and he sends a team of priests in carrying the ark. And when their feet hit the water, guess what? The message is the same. The result is the same. The water's still part. Joshua did it different. He did it with a team. And, and so, th so that's, that's cool. That's okay. 
Now, the word land is found 87 times in the book of Joshua. This book is all about claiming the promised land and conquering the promised land. And this has been a long-standing promise. Uh, Canaan, the promised land, was first promised by God to Abraham in Genesis 12. That promise was reaffirmed to Isaac in Genesis 26. It was reaffirmed to Jacob in Genesis 28. It was uh, reaffirmed to all their descendants in Genesis 50. And if you read the first five books, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, you'll find that it repeatedly refers to God's promise. Take the land. The land is yours. Go into the land. Conquer the land. Settle the land. The book of Deuteronomy is Moses' farewell speech to Israel. And in that book, he uses the word land almost 200 times in that one book. And he uses the word possess more than 50 times. So when you turn the page into the book of Joshua, here's what you see. They're a new generation, but they're holding on to this ancient promise. It was passed to them from their elders. It was passed to them from previous generations. It was paid for by the battles of previous generations. And now they're at the cusp of a brand new level of living, a brand new inheritance, a brand new place to, to go and possess. So they're a new generation. But they're holding on to an old promise that's never yet been possessed. I don't have to come here and tell you about prophetic words that have been spoken over you and over this church and over ministries here. I don't have to come here and tell you about what God has spoken over the greater Toronto area and over the province of Ontario. I don't have to come here and tell you that. You've lived here. You've heard it. You've been in meetings when that, those words were spoken. Can I tell you, this generation is the generation on the cusp of walking in to what previous generations have paid for and prayed for. And, and we're, we're not trying trying to invent something new. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. What we're trying to do is stand on the shoulders of the giants who brought us here, the great men and women of God, God who, who prayed for this and paid for this, and we get to walk into what they saw, and we get to walk into what they prayed for, and we get to walk into what was prophesied. And that's where Israel is when you open up the book of Joshua. I uh, am so thrilled. And I love uh, precious elders. I'm so grateful for the message we've been passed. I've, uh, I'm sure if I haven't told the story here, uh, I, I would be shocked. But I'm so grateful for my heritage. It was my uh, great uncle who first uh, became an apostolic in our family. And what a, a miracle uh, he had in his life when he received the baptism of the Holy Ghost and the revelation of baptism in Jesus' name. It was an absolute miracle from God. Uh, I thank God for that. But the thing is, what a waste it would be if I had a heritage like that and a history like that and promises like that and a heritage of prayer like that, and then I decide I'm just going to kind of live my life and make my paycheck and prepare for retirement or whatever's coming next and, and just kind of coast. What a travesty and what a tragedy that would be for all of us in this generation. So I just came here to this wonderful church on this very special Sunday to say there's new territory that's yet to be possessed. And you've heard the words and you've been in the services and you, you, you've felt the impact of prophecies. 
I just came to tell you all of those things were true. There's a scripture God gives to Daniel in the book of Daniel. Uh, this word God gives to Daniel. And, 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 and the Bible says, uh, and, and the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. That's the word. The, everything Daniel saw was true, but it didn't all happen the next day. The thing was true, but the time appointed was long. You've maybe prayed for somebody in your family for a bunch of months or years. Let me tell you, the thing's true. God doesn't just tease you. The thing you saw, you can almost taste it. It's so real. The thing's true, even though God's timetable isn't always the same as your timetable. And it works for a church family too. The thing God's spoken over this place is true, even though the time, we'd prefer the time to be like, hey God, yesterday would be good. We'd prefer that. God's timetable isn't always like us. And, and uh, we're a, a new generation, but we're holding on to this ancient power and ancient process. Uh, let, let, let me go a little bit further. Joshua chapter 1. Uh, Joshua 1 and verse 1. That's a good place to start a Bible book. Verse 1, chapter 1. Okay, so here we go. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister. And here's what he said to Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead. God always tells the truth. Well, Moses is gone. So Moses is dead. Now, therefore, arise. You get up, Joshua. That generation's gone. Go over this Jordan, you and all the people, unto the land which I do give them, even to the children of Israel. This is the verse we love to quote for good reason. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said, unto Moses. Now, if you read that just at surface, you'll think, well, God said, you just walk through the land, I'll give you the land. It's not that easy. Uh, you, you just take a walk, Joshua. If you see a nice stream or a nice mountain or a nice valley, nice fertile field, you just walk through it, I'll give it to you. That is not what God said. Because the word tread there is a military word. In the Hebrew, it's darak, and they still use it in commissioning armed forces in Israel today. Darak doesn't mean just take a stroll, take a walk. Darak means to tread upon, to walk, to shoot a bow, to thresh a field, to tread down, to walk over. It literally means, it's a military word, pick up your weapons and fight. So here's what God said. Joshua, every place where you'll wade in and you'll pick up your weapons and you'll fight for it, I'll give you that. I'm not going to give you every place that you stroll into and wish you had it. I'm not going to give you everything that you just kind of fondly think, well, that would sure be nice, God. That's not what I'm giving you. But if you decide... I'm going to lock my feet and square my shoulders and push the enemy out of here. And I'm going to pick up my weapons and fight for it. God said, if you develop that kind of attitude, I will give you every place that you decide to fight for. I'll give it to you. Can I tell you, that's the word of God for us in this generation. God's not just going to give it to us because we wish that more people were added to the kingdom or we wish that our family was saved or we wish that some miracle happened. But God said, if you'll lock your feet and stare the enemy straight in the eyes and just square your shoulders and set your face like a flint, you pick up your weapons and fight for it. God said, I will give you that because God honors that kind of faith. Every place you fight for, I'll give it. There's a story I read, oh my goodness, been years ago, and it was in a paper book. Uh, so it's been, uh, you know, I, I don't have it. I, it's not on my iPad. I, I've looked. I've gone through my library. <clears throat> I've looked for it, but I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember it because it impacted me so much. It was this, uh, this mother uh, who had a, a son that was a teenager, and he was just starting to flounder in his relationship with God because of some friends at church. 
And he was really starting to kind of waver in his relationship with God. And uh, she, she got so uh, bent out of shape about that. Oh, God, I can't lose my boy, you know. Uh, he, he's starting to struggle in his relationship with God. And, and ungodly friends at school are starting to influence him. And she got so uh, disturbed about that. And she was in a service, uh, an old-style Pentecostal service, where, where somebody at the front, uh, they were anointing uh, handkerchiefs, prayer cloths. They were anointing them with oil and praying over them, and that's in your Bible. Uh, the, the, they took uh, cloths, handkerchiefs from, from the apostles, and they, they gave them to people and touched people with them. And be, It wasn't a magic hanky. There's no such thing, okay? It was a symbol of their faith, and they'd anointed it with oil. And people were healed. And so she was in a service. So she goes up and she gets this handkerchief or piece of cloth. And she goes up and gets it anointed. And she prays for her boy in the altar. And she's so desperate for God to do something in, in that young man's life. And she went home. Her son by now had stopped coming to church very much. And, and he was just being, you know, he's just having the difficulty of, of those years in school when his friends were such an impact on him negatively. And she went home and she said, God, what am I going to do? She walked into her son's room. He wasn't there that night. He was out with friends, probably doing who knows what. And she, it hit her. She took that little prayer cloth that had been anointed with oil and prayed over, and she cut it into a bunch of strips. And she went through his closet. She got his shirts out, and she reached in under the arms where he couldn't ever see it, and she sewed a piece of prayer cloth in all of his shirts. She got his blue jeans, and she went way inside under the pocket, and she sewed a little piece of prayer cloth where he'd never find it. She even got his tennis shoes, and she took his Nikes out of the closet, and she lifted up the insole underneath, and she tucked a piece of prayer cloth under both of the soles in his tennis shoes. She had no way of knowing that that week, his best friend at school, who was being a terrible influence on him, uh, his tennis shoes got ripped or torn or lost or something, and he borrowed her son's tennis shoes. She had no idea this happened. And within a week... At the max, two weeks, just a very short time. This neighbor kid that was always at her house, and she's really concerned about this neighbor kid because he's having a really bad influence on her son. He ends up coming over to her house, and they're all sitting around, and the guys are playing video games or whatever they were doing, and she knows this kid's a negative influence on her boy, and she's so concerned. And this kid pipes up and says, I'd like to go to your church sometime. He's wearing her son's tennis shoes at the moment. And doesn't realize he's got prayer claws under both soles. He doesn't have a clue. He said, I'd like to go to your church sometime. She said, that'd be great. Do you want to go? And she names her son and her son. And nah, I don't want to go. So this kid ends up going with her, with her to the church. He ends up going to the altar and God just totally uh, messes him up. He, he just has this great miraculous experience with God. Now her boy not only has mama... He's got his best buddy who's now a Jesus fanatic saying, what is wrong with you? You grew up in this church and you don't even want to go? Come on, man. And so her son ended up getting back in the altar, back to God, because now it wasn't magic cloth. It wasn't a magic hanky. It was a mother saying, wait a minute. This boy's my boy. I'm going to lock my feet here. This is my battle. I'm going to stand my ground and I'm going to fight. And God said, any place you'll fight for, I will give it to you. I'll give it to you. Oh, my goodness. David, later on, David, David, uh, King David, he trains his mighty men. You remember his mighty men? Those guys were awesome. 
they, they weren't the, the greatest, you know, uh, he men in the world, but they were just filled with faith in God and they had faith in their leader. And uh, he goes through a whole list of them at the end of his reign. And there was one guy, I'm thinking it's Shama. He, he decided the Philistines would come in and, and just terrorize the land. And they'd wait until the crop was just about to be harvested. And then they'd come running in the country and they'd overrun the fields and, and they'd take all the crops and they'd steal the harvest. They kept stealing Israel's harvest every year, just like clockwork. And Shama, he got so disgusted. He had a little... Uh, field of lentils, a hill of beans. Hill of beans, that comes from the Bible, a field of lentils, okay? He said, this might not mean anything to you, but this is my field of lentils. It might not be so much, it might not be so great, but hey, it's mine. And the Bible says he stood his ground and he whooped a whole battalion of Philistines all by himself. I think he's the one he fought until his sword clave to his hand. His hand just formed an iron grip around that sword. And he beat a whole Philistine army off that hill of beans. It might not be important to you. But this is my marriage. This is my house. This is my son. This is my daughter. This is my health. This is my finances. Devil, you're not welcome to just trample all over this. I'm going to stand my ground. And God said, every place you put the sole of your feet, I'll give it to you if you'll fight for it. Let me show you something. This is cool. Uh, This is verse 4 of Joshua uh, chapter 1. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even under the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and under the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. Doesn't that scripture just bless your heart? No, we don't even understand what it said. But maybe if we look on a map, we would understand. Look, Look at this. Show them that next picture. You see that little tiny yellow country in there at the end of the Mediterranean, Israel? You see Tel Aviv, the little red square in there? That's what Israel looks like today. That big area is the land God promised them. If they'd kept fighting, Israel today would look like that. Next time you hear the media talk about the occupied territories over there in the Middle East... That's the occupied territories. All those other countries are sitting in what God promised Israel. But it's not their fault. It's Israel's fault. Because Israel stopped fighting too soon. My goodness, folks, we can't afford to make the same mistake spiritually in this day and age. When God has souls in this area that he wants to add to his kingdom, when he has family members that you've prayed for for years, don't you dare quit now because uh, we can stop too soon and not inherit the territory God wants us to have. So, so the word is we need to just prepare to take the land because uh, the land has been promised to you. The land has been prophesied over you. You You can see it. You can taste it. You can hear it. You can feel it. But if we just kind of coast, we don't get it. But God said, if you'll fight for it, I will give it to you. Those are the boundaries of the promised land that God gave to Abraham. Now, let me just kind of um, head this direction for a few minutes. God isn't transitioning Israel at this point to a place where there's no more battles. And he's never going to transition us until we get to heaven. He's not going to transition us to a place where there's no more battles. You are not going to achieve a level in your spiritual life where all of a sudden, oh, no more struggles. 
that means you're dead. Okay, so you don't want to get there yet, all right? We, we sing songs, some of the older songs, they're beautiful hymns, they're just wrong doctrinally. Um, you know, they talk about Canaan as though it's heaven. Canaan is not a, a representation of heaven. There's giants in Canaan, there's walled cities, there's wars, there's enemies, there's battles, there's all kinds of stuff they had to face. So Canaan is in heaven. And if you want to sing about Canaan being heaven, that's fine. I'm not going to trash all those beautiful old songs, but they're not doctrinally correct. Canaan is actually a type of the deeper spiritual life that we're trying to get to. It's, it's a type of the victory God wants to give us. Still battles, still giants, still walls, still cities, still struggles, but it's your territory. And so it's worth fighting if it's your territory. Uh, and, and, and so God sends them in. And, and so God isn't putting Israel in a place where there'll be no more battles or no more struggles. He's just putting them in a place where every battle, please hear me, every battle they fight from here on out will be more strategic than any battle they've fought before because they're walking into a new place. Uh, the, the results of every battle from here on out will be more significant it's not that there won't be any more battles, but God will give them significant, strategic battles to fight that will result in them inheriting the promised land. You say, that's all in the Old Testament. Glad you mentioned that. Let's go to the New Testament. Ephesians 6, verse 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We are fighting too, but we're fighting against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. We are wrestling against spiritual wickedness in high places. You are not fighting your spouse. Well, you may be, but you shouldn't be. You are not fighting your mean boss. You are not fighting your neighborhood association. You're not fighting any of that. They might be the symptoms of what's going on. The devil doesn't want your house. He doesn't want your car. People say crazy things in Pentecost. People stand up and say, the devil, you know, he, he gave me a flat tire. No, he didn't. The devil doesn't want your car, okay? He can't drive. He's a spirit being, okay? So he doesn't want your car. The devil took my job. No, he didn't. What's he going to do? Go in and type. He doesn't want your job. He wants your faith. He'll attack your house or your car or your marriage or your home or your health or your finances or your job. He'll attack anything, but he's not after that. He's after your faith. The battle's not down here. This is just the symptom. The battle is in the heavenlies. And the devil would like to destroy your faith and make you think that this is as good as it gets. And this is about as large as the church gets. And this is about as many of your family are saved as are going to be saved. And, and your miracle is just about as far away as it's ever and none of that's true the devil's attacking your faith and he wants you to believe what you see instead of what's real he's smart he's sly he's cunning but he's the biggest liar in the history of the cosmos the devil couldn't tell the truth standing on a stack of bible standing behind the pulpit at life church he lies and he's lying to you your battles are in the heavenlies 2 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> Though we walk in the flesh, we go to work and we pay our bills and we go to school and we walk in the flesh, but we're not warning after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. What's a stronghold? A stronghold is something that gets in your mind and your heart that you believe. You believe a lie. You believe you're always going to be sick. You believe you're going to die. You believe that, that you're going to have an accident that's going to mess you up. You believe that the devil's going to kill your kids or the devil's going to wreck your marriage. You start believing a lie that the devil's told you. 
And if the devil can get fear in your mind, and if the devil can get doubt in your mind, he will just hit you and hammer you on that. But the weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to pull down those false ideas. To pull down, you don't pull them down by getting mad. You pull them down in prayer. You pull them down. Casting down imaginations. Casting down every high thing that in your mind exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing, see this is all about your mind. Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. The battle is right here. That's the battle. And, and, and so we've got to pray in the Spirit, and we've got to go after it in God. The word to the church is, take the land. Now, Joshua, he knew all about strongholds because he had watched Israel stalemated for 40 years because of a stronghold in their mind. We're too little. We're too weak. We can't do it. Look at what they said, Numbers 13. There we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. We were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. That's how they saw themselves. And I meet so many people. I meet people having uh, Pentecostal paranoia all the time. You know, they're, they're, and Pentecostal panic attacks, you know. Uh, they, they come to church, but they're, they're just scared of everything. And uh, the devil is, is big and bad and mean and crafty and cunning, but he's tiny compared to my God. And, and, and he can't do anything to a child of God that doesn't have to. He does, has to get permission to go through the hand of God to get anywhere near your life. Now, there, there, were, there was a long list of enemies that could have prevented Israel from entering into their promised land. I, I, this is amazing. I want to ask God about this someday. How come every enemy that Israel had ended in ite? Amalekite, Ammonite, Amorites, Canaanites, Edomites, Gebelites, Geshurites, Gibeonites, Girgashites, Gerzites, Hittites, Hivites, Horites, Jebusites, Kenites, Moabites, Perizzites. Why? But anyway, they did. So, so there's all these enemies that want to keep Israel out of the land. And that's why God said to Israel, um, they're not going to go away just because you wish they would go away. Your obstacles are not going to disappear just because you hope they will disappear. God said, I want you to drive them out. But let me see if we can bring this in for a landing here. Numbers chapter 33. Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, when you pass over Jordan into the land of Canaan, here's what I want you to do. You will drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. I want you to destroy all their pictures and destroy all their molten images and quite pluck down all their high places. Watch this. This is a cool word. And you shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and you will dwell in their place for I have given you the land to possess it. I want you to dispossess the land. Here's how you dispossess something. Pry them off of that one finger, one toehold, one foothold at a time. You don't just make one attack, one prayer, one good worship service, and the devil just goes, oh, my goodness, well, here, it's yours. The devil is not going to do that. But God said, I want you to dispossess. And the image literally is, I want you to pry their fingers off that land. You're going to have to do it sometimes battle by battle, sometimes day by day, sometimes hour by hour. You've got a whole list of ites here. You're going to have to deal with Amorites and Ammonites and Hittites and Hivites, and you're going to have to deal with them all. And so it's going to take a while. 
But if you will fight for it, and if you will dispossess them, I'm talking to uh, maybe a mother in here tonight, and you're praying for some family member, maybe one of your kids. And, And I just want to tell you that the word of the Lord to you would be, you need to dispossess the enemy. Um, you, you may have one good day and three bad days. You may have one good conversation and 10 bad conversations. Don't you dare get discouraged because here's what you're doing. You're prying the devil's fingers off of your son, off of your daughter, off of your home, off of your marriage, off of your health, off of your situation. One slimy finger at a time. And sometimes you just got to keep hitting that over and over, praying that over and over, fighting that over and over, pushing down doubt and lifting up faith. And you just got to keep doing it but the word of the lord to this church is take the land i've never met anybody with more uh, passion or compassion than pastor steve and sister sherry they love people and i'm so excited you get to um, have them here for your leadership i'm so glad they've raised up a team and uh, i have noticed uh, such a depth in the worship here today Um, When the presence of God flooded in and uh, so many guests that were here this morning, I'm so grateful for that. When the presence of God flooded into this room this morning, I just stood over there and just wept. I soaked a handkerchief this morning. It wasn't with anointing oil. It was just tears. uh, I'm so grateful, and I noticed such a depth in your worship compared to even the last time I was here. God is ramping this place up for the next phase and the next stage. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean there's not going to be any battles. That doesn't mean there's not going to be any more struggles. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy. That doesn't mean that at all. In fact, it may be that God may just push you off the deep end, off the high diving board, and and you might go out of a service like this. You might go off of a Sunday like this, and this week you might face a battle. Here's what you got to remember. Of course the devil's going to fight you. Of course the devil is going to attack. Why? He's a good devil. Like he's good at his job, okay? He's not a good devil. You know what I mean. Don't give me grief while I'm in the pulpit. He's good at his job. He knows exactly what your weak link is. He's studied you all your life because he wants to take you to the same hell that he has to go to. He's mad because he, you know, the devil's got a, a major problem. He sinned and all of his angels that he convinced to sin with him and God kicked him out of heaven. End of story. No second chance. Some of us have got a second chance and a third chance and a fifth chance and a 25th chance and a 61st chance and a 127th chance. The devil hates you because he's fallen and he can't get back up and you're headed up. Somebody said, you've heard the old statement, you know, the devil, he's always like lurking around. He wants to drag you back to your past and he's always tormenting you about your past and you're no good and you're not worthy and and, and you shouldn't be here and you don't belong in this church and you're not like all those other people. The next time the devil gets at you and starts talking to you about your past, your past, your past, you just need to point and say, your future, your future, your future, because he's on the way down, but the church is on the way up and that's you. So it's a, it's a very, very simple little thing. I, I, I don't have anything uh, big and impressive to tell you tonight except just this. Take the land. The land could be your family. The land could be a miracle that you need. 
The land could be uh, parts of this community where there is no witness and God wants you because you live there and you know how ungodly some of the activity is where you live. And God put you there not by accident. He didn't drop you at the curb and say, well, you're kind of on your own. God wants you to wade in like you're his child. Wade in like you're a prayer warrior. Wade in like you're an apostolic believer because you are. And dispossess the enemy. And to dispossess him, boy, sometimes you got to pry his fingers off that situation. Don't you dare stop praying. Don't you dare stop believing. Don't you dare discount the words that have been spoken over this pulpit in this church by this pastor and others. Because God has a purpose and a plan. And the word is, don't run, don't hide, don't turn back, take the land. Every place that the sole of your foot treads, every place you say, mine, I'm going to fight for this devil. God said, I'll give you that. I don't know who you are specifically. I know it's for this church, but I don't know who you are or what your deal is or what your situation is, but I'm here to tell you and just confirm what God, what you wish could be true, what you hope is true. Let me tell you, what you wish could be true is true, and what you hope could be true, it is true. It's the Word of God. If you'll fight for it, I'll give it to you. I'd like you to lift your hands right now. And whatever that situation is for you, your family, your life, your future, your health, your marriage, your home, whatever that situation is. Now, here's where I need you, Life Church, right now. I want you to lift up your voice. And I want you to get just a little bit insistent in your prayer. Just a little bit militant in your prayer. Just a little bit pushy in your prayer. Suta rabakerabosiesa. I reject you, Satan. I reject your lies. I reject your tactics. I reject your doubt. But Jesus, I love you. I believe your word. I believe your promise. I believe you're going to do exactly what you said you were going to do. I believe in my family. It's only begun. I believe in my family that they are going to be saved and walking with you. I believe my marriage is going to be restored. I believe my kids are coming back to church church. I believe, God, that my siblings are going to see your glorious truth. I believe it. But I don't just believe it, God. I stand on it. I stand here and I say, this is mine. My son is mine. My daughter is mine. My grandchildren are mine. My spouse is mine. I'm going to fight for them. I'm going to stand my ground, God. Oh, I wish you'd pray. I worship you, Jesus.
I worship you, Jesus. I give you praise, God. I give you praise, God. I worship you, God. Sis, can you go to that very last scripture in the, I think it's the very last one. Yeah, 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 yeah. I preached on this scripture the other day, the other afternoon in Illinois. Uh, not that whole verse. I preached, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. And I preached a message just simply called the anchor. And I had a big rope. And I was preaching how God's promises, they're, they're, they're like an anchor rope. And we're held to that promise. And it may look like we're getting beat around and pushed off track and pushed back and knocked down. But when you've got an anchor, and your anchor is the promises of God. And your anchor is as sure as the promises of God. And at the end of that service, it was an afternoon service uh, in Bartlett, Illinois. And I asked uh, parents that had uh, backslidden kids to come out in the aisle and in the altar. And it was a long 100-foot rope. And we just spread it all around. And I said, I want you to get a hold of that rope. And I want you to pray over your, over your kids. And my goodness, it was just so powerful. Um, there was a young man there. He, he didn't have any children. What he had was a wife who had decided in the Chicago area, they had only been married just a couple of years, and she decided, enough of you, buddy, and she just headed out into greater Chicago land somewhere, and, and she was living an immoral, ungodly lifestyle. She was into everything you could imagine, and this young man newly married, just a couple of years, brokenhearted. His wife just turfed him and took off, and she's with all kinds of other guys and into all kinds of mess, and, and, and he didn't have any kids. But he said, you know what? I believe that. <laughs> he came out, and he, he was standing way back there in the aisle, probably where Mark's standing, maybe a little further back in that church, and, and he, he reached out, and he grabbed that rope, and he started praying. He said, God, I'm praying for my wife. She doesn't want me. She doesn't love me. She's walked away. She's living ungodly. He said, but I'm praying. I'm believing her. And his cell phone in his pocket started to vibrate. He finished praying. He goes out into the lobby, and it's a call from his wife. He hasn't heard from her for weeks or months. And he, he calls her back after the service ended that afternoon. She said, um, she said, I need to get back to church. I need to get back to God. It shocked the living daylights out of him because his phone started vibrating. He said, as soon as I touched the rope, my phone started vibrating in my pocket. She said, can I come to that church tonight? She did, and she prayed back through to God that night. I don't care how far gone or how wrong they are right now. The reason you're in their life is God put you there to fight for them. I don't care how far gone they are. I'm done. Uh, it wasn't much of a sermon, but I'm telling you, I got a word for you tonight. I'd like you to reach over and grab the hand of somebody next to you, family with family and guys with guys and ladies with ladies. I'd like you to get a hold of somebody's hand, and I'd like you to go to prayer right now like this church knows how to go to prayer because somebody's future depends on your prayer in the present, and somebody's victory depends on you standing your ground and fighting the battle for them, and somebody's answer depends on you saying, 
saying, devil, I'm going to stand my ground. This one's mine. This territory's mine. This child, this grandchild, this spouse, this sibling, that's mine. Every place that you step your foot, every place that you fight for, I'll give it to you. Thank you for joining us today. We pray this message spoke into your life, your heart, or whatever situation you may be going through. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us at lifechurch.ca on Instagram. And on Facebook, search Life Church, and you will find our navy blue logo with the letters LC in the middle. We thank you for your support and love you all. Have a wonderful week and God bless.